The Start On Demand. On demand. Winnipeg grocery store Food Fair gets slapped with a $10,000 fine for opening on Good Friday. So it's okay for bars, casinos, and cannabis stores to be open on Good Friday, but I can't go buy a jug of milk or loaf of bread from Food Fair. Also, you'll enjoy what Cam Poitras needs to get when he runs to the store in a pinch. The city of Winnipeg is losing out on major tax revenue and keeping developers away because of slow, inefficient permit and planning problems. That's according to a report from the province in consultation with 50 anonymous stakeholders. And we'll introduce you to an author who took matters into her own hands to deal with a real jerk on an airplane. I'm Brett McGarry. Alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, we are Mackling McGarry. Gary and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, May 29th podcast for The Start. According to a report released by the province yesterday afternoon, the city of Winnipeg is losing out on major tax revenue and keeping developers away because of permit and planning problems. The report was created in consultation with 50, and here's a word that has some people bothered, anonymous stakeholders, which say investments of private capital are being unnecessarily delayed by arbitrary regulations. Winnipeg continues to grow and build homes and commercial developments at what is difficult to describe as anything other than an impressive pace. This report indicates that development could be even more impressive with a change in culture at the city of Winnipeg. Here's one of those quotes from an, 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 an anonymous contributor. We are losing a lot of development opportunity to other cities across Canada. People don't want to build here anymore. Lanny McInnes is president and CEO of Manitoba Home Builders, and he shares his views on the report and whether or not it reflects his members' experiences eye-opening in terms of some of the issues that uh, that the province and uh, the city of Winnipeg are having in terms of uh, planning permitting and and inspections um, unfortunately from you know it's, it's not surprising in terms of some of the feedback that was uh, represented in the report uh, very similar in terms of some of the things that we hear anecdotally from our members and uh, uh, understanding it's a, it's you know, not an easy process to go through but uh, there are ways I think that we can work together to come up with some recommendations some solutions to make the the process a bit cleaner a bit more transparent and uh, a bit easier to, to maneuver after some back and forth with the media McKinnis shared a specific circumstance which highlights the frustration that builders face in our city from time to time one example that I can uh, can share with you is um, recently we had a builder who on a previous home built the built the home uh, there was unfortunately a fire it's a warranty um, uh, warranty rebuild same home uh, same foundation um, exact same spot no other changes and they had to go through the variance process again uh, because it's essentially a new home even though it's exactly the same plan it was approved nothing has changed that was city of winnipeg that was city of winnipeg so those types of things happen on a frequent basis that we do hear about 
Now, variance, for those that are unfamiliar, is a change that might be outside the regular purview of what happens in a, in a specific type of residential development. If it, it might be... If it's zoned for something and then they have to check to see if it actually fits, fits what's even allowed it's again, on that It's even property. smaller than that, typically, Loren. Uh, you're not allowed to build traditionally uh, four feet within the property line, but you can build within two feet of the property line if you get a variance and you adjust the way you build the home. So there are all sorts of things that can be changed, do get changed without any public fanfare, that there are some some latitudes that, that are allowed within this realm. Now, um, NDP MLA, Andrew Swan, didn't suggest that there aren't any problems happening in this department, this part of the city, but he didn't like how the report was compiled. The Premier decided to say one thing, independent review, and then did the exact opposite by uh, directing Treasury Board, which reports to the Minister of Finance, to uh, to conduct whatever it is that's been done. And it is interesting, of course, that Minister Fielding, the Minister of Finance, was on EPC with the city for uh, for many years and may have uh, a lot of information about some of the things that went wrong. Do you think this is um, this sort of lays the groundwork for the problems to take away some of the powers that municipalities have? Well, who knows what the Premier is planning. The Premier does not play well with others, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Premier would like to remove some powers from municipalities, but that, that's for another day. The Premier insists that this report was required and that there will be follow-up. I, I have a problem with distractions and deliberate attempts to distract from the fundamental issue aren't helpful. What I'm talking about is a problem that's getting in the way of job creation in Manitoba that needs to be addressed. The issue of inspections is a serious issue. It needs to be addressed. The issue of permitting needs to be addressed. They're not sexy, they're probably not headline grabbing, but they're important issues because if they're not dealt with and they're not dealt with well, uh, then capital will run somewhere else. And that might, and that, sorry to interrupt you, but that might mean that capital would flow out of Manitoba and it might mean that capital would go to other jurisdictions where the permitting processes work better, where the inspection processes work better. So we've listened. The Treasury Board people are civil servants who are dedicated to doing good research. They've done, I think, a, a yeoman's job in just the last several weeks of uh, interviewing and compiling uh, information that will now be shared back with interested parties and then we'll gather perspectives from them and then uh, come forward with recommendations and, and as well make those, make those recommendations public so that, so that uh, you can report on them if you wish and so that Manitobans can see that we're taking the issue seriously. In a statement, Mayor Brian Bowman said he's going to look at the report but he also thinks it should have been done independently. We did ask him to come on our show and have asked him for an interview to discuss this further throughout the day. Our question to you as a tax, taxpayer, does this information bother you if you're a customer of the City of Winnipeg? Switch now to a conversation about this convicted drug trafficker and alleged kingpin of the notorious Chinese crime cartel, the Big Circle Boys. His name is Kwok Chung Tam, and he's 61. He lives in Canada, and for almost as long as he's lived in Canada, officials have actually been trying to deport him. But our next guest has uncovered documents showing Canada's legal system may have actually helped this alleged gangster avoid deportation. Brian Hills with Global News and is one of the investigative reporters behind this story and joins us now. Good morning, Brian. 
Good morning. Let's start first, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Big Circle Boys or even uh, this alleged kingpin. Tell us a bit about him and what he's accused of. Sure. So uh, Kwok Young Tam has uh, been in Canada since 1998, uh, 1988, and he has been alleged to have been a member and a kingpin of the Big Circle Boys, which are a mainland-based Chinese crime cartel that uh, deal in heroin importing and uh, other sorts of organized crime and, and RCMP and other law enforcement have alleged that Tam is a member of that group and has been for some time. So the allegations have been out there for years. He has been in and out of the court system, if I'm reading this correctly, but there's been no headway on deporting him from Canada back to China? Yeah, so uh, he's been under the eye of the law enforcement since almost uh, the first time he arrived here. 1990-91, he was being investigated for uh, links to organized crime. He was convicted of theft in 1992. He had a deportation order filed against him in 1993. Uh, and, and then from that point onward, essentially, he's been under the eye of, of immigration officials as well as, law, uh, as well as law enforcement officials in an effort to, to either prosecute him for a various number of crimes or to deport him, uh, which uh, as of yet hasn't happened. What is his status in terms of being in Canada? Is he a citizen? Is he a landed immigrant? Uh, What can you tell us, Brian? So it's a great question. Uh, Essentially, in in 2010, Pam was convicted of uh, possession of marijuana for the purposes of trafficking as well as possession of narcotics. Uh, And from that point on, it sort of set this motion in place where he was trying to stay in Canada as a permanent resident. Those applications were denied, but then appeals were filed with the courts. And the most recent update that we know of was in November 2017, the Office of Immigration Minister Ahmad Hassan settled the case before the federal court. We don't know the status of that decision or what the, what the outcome of that was, but uh, essentially the, the, the decision to settle that case meant that he wasn't going to be removed at that time, or at least that's what we suspect. Uh, the true nature of that settlement is unknown at this time. Why wouldn't that be a matter of public record? So when, when, when you, all the files, and this, this is what's really interesting, is that all of the information we have gained, which is in this report, comes from these federal court files, thousands and thousands of pages. Then they were all submitted in an effort to try and keep Tam in Canada. Uh, but when a case is settled prior to that decision being made, the terms of those settlements are confidential. So we've asked the government to release the terms of that November 2017 uh, uh, settlement. We've asked them to confirm uh, Mr. Tam's status in Canada, uh, but the government as of yet has not responded to those questions. How, how have they aided in the process as far as you can read in the documents that you have been able to get? How have they aided in keeping him here rather than seeing to his removal? Yes, so this is an interesting thing, and it doesn't just apply to TAM, but uh, essentially what we've got here is there's repeated, uh, you get repeated chances. So so TAM, uh, TAM came here in 88 and filed an application uh, for refugee protection. Uh, that application wasn't heard until 1996, uh, eight years later. And, then, you know, in that meantime, he had been charged with criminal offense, convicted of a criminal offense, had been issued a deportation order, but was then allowed to say after he got a negative refugee decision in 1996, he's again allowed to submit what's called a pre-removal risk assessment, 
Um, so essentially, he just kept running out the clock on all these legal avenues. And then on top of that, when there are criminal prosecutions that are underway, uh, you're not you're not eligible to be deported. So there's actually provisions and policies within the Immigration Act that uh, stipulate that when somebody is pend- has pending or is facing criminal charges, that the deportation is stayed. So on multiple occasions, Tam has faced numerous criminal charges for uh, conspiracy to traffic heroin, uh, weapons-related charges, uh, production of narcotics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, never been convicted of those crimes, but in the of those charges. But in the meantime, his deportation has been stayed while their prosecution moves forward. If, I, if I'm listening to this, like, you know, I'm out there and I'm wondering, I hear stories all the time of, you know, a grandmother in a church basement doesn't want to be deported back to a country because she fears persecution or families are going to be split up because the dad's going to be sent back, but maybe not the mom or the mom has done nothing wrong, but is going to go because the paperwork wasn't filed properly. And because he's just has an ongoing criminal prosecution, there's nothing that can be done about removing him from the country during the process of the, during those prosecutions. That's correct. So um, there is uh, there is within the policy framework. There's an opportunity for prosecutors and for immigration officials for the Canada Border Services Agency to sit down and negotiate essentially a deal where char- criminal charges could be stayed, which would then open up the opportunity for deportation. But so long as criminal proceedings are moving forward, that's not what the policy uh, uh, typically dictates, because it would be unreasonable or, un- I guess, uh, irresponsible to to have somebody removed from the country while they're still pressing forward with criminal charges. Now, why Tam had never was deported uh, uh, in the interceding periods where he wasn't facing criminal charges, you know, that that's that's something that we don't fully know. Do we know where he's spending his days currently? So according to recent court filings in B.C., uh, we believe Tam is living in, in Richmond, B.C., uh, in a condo that he owns. He owns multiple properties in Vancouver. Um, as the records, court records clearly show that even from his very early days, uh, uh, you know, as early as 1992, 93, he was reporting having owned multiple properties uh, throughout the Lower Mainland. Brian Hill with Global News Investigative Reporter joining us live on CJOB. Thank you very much for this, Brian. Thank you so much. We've been telling you about how Munther's Eat at Food Fair got slapped with a $10,000 fine for being open on Good Friday. He spoke with Jeff Courier yesterday. He is fired up. Can you fight this in any way? Oh, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. Even if it costs me a hundred grand, I'm fighting it. You want to hear the whole conversation, go to cjob.com, find it in the audio vault. They spoke yesterday, just after the 1230 news. And Jeff Braun is here. Cam Poitras is here. Jeff Fortier. Question of the day yesterday afternoon, which is brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca. Call 204-987-6890. Local supermarket owner was fined $10,000 for operating on Good Friday. What do you think about this law? 52% say it needs to change. 33% say it's confusing. Why can the casinos and cannabis stores operate? And 15% say it's fair. The owner knew the rules. So, Cam Poitras, what say you? Uh, I say open it up. Yeah, open it up. Uh, exactly. Cannabis stores, the big the big tax uh, generators for the government can be open. So why can't a guy that, you know, if you get an onion, you go into a cookout or something, 
What's the what's the harm in that? I, yeah, I like how up. the onion was the, the one thing you had to say. <laughs> like, I, I desperately need this onion. You, you, I'm, I'm glad you friend. confirmed that because in my head I was just like, did he just say onion? Nah, like, yeah. I just heard that. Like oh. turkey. I forgot the turkey, <laughs> you, so I need to go you get never the needed an emergency onion before? <laughs> I think you could live without the onion. But I, uh, there's other things at the grocery store yeah. that you'd have to, that are, <laughs> sorry. Richard <laughs> Cameron, like, oh my gosh, the onion. <laughs> Jeff Warche is trying to caramelize what? What would he Caramelized. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you think, Bron? Yeah, I would change that law as well. I mean, I, I guess it's fair that he got fined because it is a law and he broke it. But uh, it's it's always seemed weird that they just shut stuff down so heavily on a couple of religious holidays. It's bizarre. Well, well and two out of three days. You've got Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I've always argued this whole question with it around Christmas. Uh, I love the fact that we're closed on Christmas. Why can't we be closed on Boxing Day as well? And you could do all your Boxing Day sales on December 27th as well as you could oh, do them no. on December 26th. It's, a, you know, uh, whether you're religious or secular, uh, just about just about everyone celebrates Christmas in some shape or form. And... To have it all come down to one day, and then the next day you've got retail workers that have to be at work sometimes at 5.30 in the morning after the big turkey dinner and everything, I think it's ludicrous. But then, as you point out, Jeff, we have Good Friday and and Easter Sunday, two very religious holidays, Mm -hmm. respectful of that, that shut everything down for two or three days over one weekend every year. It's, It's bizarre in my mind. Kevin Rebeck, president of Manitoba Federation of Labor, had told Global News the purpose of such restrictions is to create a work-life balance, which I, I suppose is good. But why does that restriction apply to grocery stores but not cannabis stores? Like, would the workers at the cannabis stores like not want that balance, too? And the restaurant Movie theaters be open are open on Good Friday? Of, yeah. And, I mean, yeah, all so the, the all- police and fire department and hospitals are all—it's not like everybody's shut down. And you get paid extra if you do work. And I don't know, to some degree, retail is, it's like people don't, not as many people make a lifelong career out of retail as they do, say, being a nurse or something like that. So, you know what I mean? Even here at the radio station, like I lost a lot of holidays for the first six or seven years because I was new. And then you sort of graduate past that and then so it doesn't affect me anymore. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, people like hourly workers like to work yeah. this dad holidays and Munther points that out as well. He has a lot of students who work at food fair and they want to work holidays. When I was a part-timer or an hourly employee, I would line up I would tell people, I'll take your your shifts if you don't want them. I want to work Christmas. I want to work Good Friday because I want that extra time because when you're a part-timer or an hourly employee, that extra money means a ton. It's a lot of extra cash. So it's not like there would be a shortage of people who want to work those days. The full-timers, if they want to take the day off, great. Part-timers would be would be happy to work them, I'm sure. I only have a hard time if you're forced to work that day and you don't want to work on that holiday. Yeah. But if you're given the option... For, for yeah. any reason or for the for a religious reason? Well, it, well like if, if, it's deemed, day, if it's deemed a holiday yeah. and, you, and you can't get enough staff to volunteer to work and you're going to force me to work on the holiday, that's where it's a little bit of a touchy subject for me. I was a restaurant guy, as, as you all know, uh, for a long, long time. So I worked Sundays forever. I worked holidays forever. The only time the restaurant is really closed is on Good Friday. And on Christmas Day. And that is it. 
all other holidays are you're wide open for business. So I, I don't know. I when the Sunday shopping laws came in, there was that whole idea of we need a work life balance and day of rest. And let's face it, would we go back to the days without Sunday shopping? Right. I don't think we but would. But if it is for work-life life balance, then it's either close the casinos and the cannabis, cannabis shops and everybody else right. or open it up to everyone else. It can't be, it can't be a work-by-life balance argument if, I mean, excluding the nurses and the linesmen and the firefighters and all the rest, you know, those Your would be essential, essential services. services right. But either open it all up or it all stays closed. Yeah, and I, I have no problem with the casinos being open or the cannabis stores being open. No. But the grocery store should be open too. You know, if I want to go to food fair and buy a jug of milk before walking down to Tokyo Smoke and filling <laughs> and loading up on supplies, I should be able to do that. I shouldn't be only able to go get the weed and not uh, loaf Need of bread. Need your snacks. Yeah, exactly. Got to get some Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I forced to go to the convenience store? Onion. Oh, my yeah, onions. you need an onion. Emergency onion. onion. Emergency supplies for the cookout. <laughs> there is a video. On the Winnipeg Crime Stoppers Facebook page, they uploaded it just over a month ago, and we have shared it to our Facebook page. We've linked it to our 680 CJOB Instagram and Twitter. It's a compilation of ads from something called The Meth Project. Their website is methproject.org. It's a six and a half minute video, and every single ad is powerful and disturbing. For example, here's one of two teenage girls outside a truck stop as they approach a couple of guys. Hey guys. You can do anything you want to me for your 50 bucks. Well, what about her? Sure. This isn't normal. But on meth it is. As they head into the bathroom, there's another oh one about a young man stealing from his mom to buy meth. Another one about a group of teens who watch a friend overdose on meth and then just dump her in front of a hospital and drive away. They're depressing, but for many Winnipeggers, also very real. And I don't know how many times we've said it, Greg and Brett, on this station or heard officials say it, but Winnipeg is in the middle of a meth crisis. And the numbers show it's not just a blip or a fad. We've got meth seizures up. Since meth and fentanyl hit the street, police said just yesterday gun crimes continue to rise. A third of the homicides so far this year were meth-related. One third. And that number doesn't include the three homicides we saw over the weekend because it's still too early in those investigations to make a link. And then there's the meth-related calls made to Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service. So last year, WFPS received 1,166 meth-related calls. That's up 900% since 2014. If this year is any indication, they could hit a new record. Ryan Sneath is with the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service and joins us now to discuss this further. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. So if we're looking at the numbers, just at the hard data that you're seeing coming in, there, there's no sign of this slowing down. It's continuing to climb. Yeah, so we, we've seen a climb even since the beginning of January compared to last year, uh, and that is sustained for the last couple of months. What do you read into that when you say sustained? Does that mean have we talked about a plateau or is there concern that we could even go further with how many calls we get that are meth related this year? Yeah, the concern is that it will grow comparing this year to last year. Uh, as we get into summer months, uh, that's when we see a bit of an increase uh, in all our drug related calls. Uh, and so I would expect that we'll see those meth calls to go up as well. 
Ryan, we saw those numbers from the WRHA in the last couple of days and the dramatic increase in the number of people admitted to emergency rooms that are dealing with a meth-related illness, psychosis, or or other sort of related I- illness. Can you outline for us maybe the strain on resources this causes? What happens if someone in the fire paramedic service has to ride an ambulance to an ER with somebody in this situation? How long are you tied? up with those individuals and are there police resources tied up in that as well depending on the situation? I guess for us that's that's kind of what is the complicating factor with with uh, these meth calls as compared to uh, you know alcohol or some of the other substances that we're we're seeing is that it is that paranoid behavior it is that unpredictability of the individual that is on meth uh, that creates us uh, an environment where we need more resources there to support patient care. And are you getting them? I mean, we even heard last week about concerns, or perhaps it was two weeks ago, concerns with violence against paramedics. When you say the need for more resources, are you are you going to, does that mean the need to hire more staff or change the way we staff some of these calls? Uh, no, so it is, it's just the call profile becomes different. If these incidents become violent or if uh, there is a concern, obviously that's going to involve police response to these incidents or a, a assistance through a fire response as well. Um, it just ends up requiring more resources for us to manage a single patient. If Ryan, if you take uh, an individual to uh, an emergency room, say at St. Boniface, and they're having a, a heart attack or some sort of cardiac event, how long before you're handing the responsibility of that patient off to the hospital and then you can leave versus a meth situation? So we've worked very hard with our WHA partners uh, with transitions of care and handing over care to free up our resources in a timely manner. And we've seen consistent improvement across all patient types uh, with with that. Uh, it, for us, it would just be involved with police resources, uh, perhaps with meth patients at the ER or security resources at the ER. Uh, but we are able to hand over patient care relatively quickly. When you see somebody who's on meth, are there some giveaway symptoms that you can spot before you've even spoken to them? Sure. It is that paranoid behavior. Uh, it is that um, uh, extremely paranoid behavior, the uh, difficulty in answering questions, a uh, bit evasive with questions, uh, not understanding the questions that you're asking them. Uh, it, it does complicate uh, uh, the attempt to try to provide patient care for them. So we've been talking a lot about this review that we're waiting for, or sorry, a report from the Illicit Drug Task Force and whether recommendations will come in that to improve upon things as it stands for just the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service right now. I know things are constantly being looked at to make sure that, you know, staff are safe and that patients stay safe. But but what do you think needs to be done right now? Can we wait for that report to come in or does something have to happen as we speak to help your service and your members through what can only be described as an escalating crisis? Yeah, I think we're actively working through uh, different avenues. We have the olanzapine that we're uh, utilizing. That's an antipsychotic medication that we're, uh, we're administering to patients that are, are taking uh, crystal meth. We're one of the first EMS resources in Canada to, to see that. Um, we are supported by our police partners. We're supported, uh, you know, through the WHA when we're arriving there. And I think part of that is it is needs to be a continuum of care. We need to be able to support these individuals in the community uh, and provide them with alternative destinations other than the emergency department. Ryan Seath with the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service joining us live on 680 CJOB to talk about meth. Ryan, thank you very much for this. We appreciate it. No problem at all. 
Now, Greg, I understand you're having some frustration when it comes to paying a bill. Yeah, and it's with the city of Winnipeg. So when that report came out yesterday about the disconnect between the development community and potentially the uh, property planning and the permits department here in the city of Winnipeg, I thought, oh boy, does this ever resonate with me? I've had in the past several interactions with permits and, and I've, for the most part, had success with them. But yesterday, no, I guess it was the day before, I stopped at City Hall. I've got an outstanding ambulance bill in uh, my grandmother's estate, and I thought I had it with me. I stopped at City Hall because that's one of the places you could pay it. Stopped at City Hall, went into my file folder, and realized I didn't have the bill. But I thought, okay, no big deal. I'll just go in and let them know my mailing address and and who the account and the, the bill's been sent to, et cetera, and I'll just you know, be able to clear it up. So I went in and you can pay your water bill there, your taxes, et cetera. And then I suggested I wanted to pay this ambulance bill, but I apologized. I don't have the bill on me. And I got this blank stare. Oh, um, well, I'm going to have to call fire and paramedic service to get the account number from them. I mean, like gonna, they can't look up your name or your... No, they can't look it up. Our, our our systems don't speak to one another. I said, you're going to have to actually physically call them? Yeah. So I gave her the information. She wrote it down and then, then she wandered over to the phone and waited, waited. And she hung down the phone and she came back just shaking her head. No, they, they, they're not answering the phone. I said, you got to be kidding me. This is, this is backwards. What year is it? 1972? So I called 911 from the lobby in the Susan Thompson building, and normally 311 will not let you speak to anybody. They take all your information, somebody will get back to you, whatever. Right away, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll transfer you to fire and paramedic. It's like they know what, uh, you know what show it is over there right now. I get no human answer. I get a voicemail and they tell me, we'll endeavor to get back to you within 48 hours with an answer to your question. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was at Home Depot the other day. I had a a, 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 a whole trolley for, full of stuff. Realized I'd forgot my wallet and my uh, Home Depot credit card at home. No problem. We'll just look it up for you. They asked me a couple questions. Boom. Done. Really? really? City of Winnipeg, you're so desperate for revenue, you're crying about unpaid bills with the ambulance service, make it easier for people to pay the bill, for crying out loud. I know I didn't have the bill, but come on. Yeah, it should be somewhere. Come on. Well, that's a, that's what is fascinating, because you think in this day and age, everything is online now, like your bill came, you probably got an e. e- email receipt and you get things online all the time and then when you walk into a place and you watch them it reminds me of living in Zimbabwe 20 years ago and it's Africa and they had to go through like a book 7,000 pages deep to find my home number and I was like I get it I'm I'm in Harare right now like this is what I expect but I don't expect that in 2019 in a Canadian city But we want to continue our conversation now about meth. Yeah, and how they might relate to a rise in weapons on our streets. So you heard yesterday Winnipeg police say the number of guns being found in Winnipeg is on the rise, including zip guns or improvised weapons. But also individuals that are involved in the meth trade. There is a direct correlation uh, with those who are using 
uh, methamphetamine and wanting to be in possession of some form of firearm, uh, not only to protect themselves, but to protect the drugs that they possess. That was Inspector Max Waddell with the Winnipeg Police Service. He says the weapons are capable of acting in the same capacity as a firearm. And police say they're being mass manufactured in our city. Built here, sold here, using copper that's been stolen from different sites and even bike parts. We know bike thefts are on the rise and that meth is partially to blame for that. And we also know some Manitobans struggle to relate to the meth crisis because there might still be that belief that meth doesn't affect them, that they don't know anyone who's using the drug. Well, odds are, at the very least, you know someone who's likely had their bike stolen. Pat Krauk is the co-executive director of The Wrench, which is a non-profit bicycling repair and education hub. And we're happy to have you in studio, Pat. Good morning. Oh, happy to be here with all you marvelous people across Manitoba. Well, thank you. I love your energy on <laughs> on a topic like this because it is a tough one. And I and I mentioned the idea that Winnipeggers and Manitobans struggle, I think, still to relate to us, even, even with property crime up and all the other ways that math might be impacting us. Uh, I think there's still that notion that, well, it's a drug I don't get, so mm-hmm. I can't connect to it. But when you speak of a bike and mm-hmm. bike that's being on the rise, it really touches so many people in our community. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Winnipeg almost became very complacent about it. Like we just accepted it as a matter of fact. You mean bike and thefts? Then, yes, yeah. bike theft. Then a spike in theft really causes us to you know, uh, look at this again and really uh, gird ourselves for coming together as a community to do something about it. Because as you say, yeah, it touches people all over. And a bicycle can be more important than uh, just a an, a luxury or an option. It can be a real central part of people's well-being, uh, people's you know job, uh, people's community. They're, they're important. And I think, it, as we've, you've said, it's indicative of broader problems. That's, that's the note I just jotted down for myself. We've discussed with you in the past the opportunity that having a bicycle can mean for certain people in our community economically in terms of their job situation. So when you lose a bike and it's stolen or taken from you, it's more than just two wheels and a, a, a source of recreation that's stolen from you. Potentially, it's your economic well-being. Yeah, or, and, or your social life, and or just your day-to-day logistics, or it's the way you relate to your child. But it's also just when people are victims of crime, it's a it's a violation, right? So it's uh, you, you can't help but take it personally, too. Well, and also, I mean, how many times have we heard stories about people who are traveling across the country or whatever, mm-hmm. and they land in Winnipeg, and lo and behold, their bike gets stolen it always seems to happen in winnipeg and this is this goes back well before the this meth crisis became a problem mm-hmm, yeah uh, part of it is changing uh attitudes so if a bike is just viewed as disposable or something that it doesn't matter you know it's more prone to theft also uh we've just taken for granted that we're locking something uh, our bike with something indestructible to something immobile so if somebody comes and just leaves a bike on a bike rack in a parkade in a hotel they don't uh you know they don't realize that it's it's really at risk. But I, I do have a top five tips for protecting. I, I was just going to say, are. because yeah. we've come, we've circled back to this over and over. And I know last summer and the summer before, as the uptick began with bike thefts, the police came out and tried to give all sorts of tips. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's a better education for the public or if it also is us becoming more involved in talking about the drug crisis as well, because that that's how we're all being impacted at a very minimum level. It's true. Uh Uh, I look at it this way to reduce bike theft, the multi-prong approach. Like, it's a complex thing. It's tied with crime. It's tied with a public health epidemic, you know. Uh, But 
the number one thing I think you could do to reduce bike theft is actually ride your bike. So get out there in your community and be seen. Ride your bike more often. So places that have more bike traffic have less crime because of we're all, kinds. all just leaving our bike in our backyard and using it once in a while. Is that sort of well, the idea? Well, if you get out and ride more, it creates community cohesion, and it's what Jane Jacobs called passive surveillance. So it's just eyes on the street. It's so not only is it people watching, but it's people connecting with each other. So riding your bike more can reduce bike theft. Uh, locking your bike right, so we just touched on this briefly, get a, like a good brand name U-lock or something with a prominent brand name on it because that could deter it just on sight. Lock it to something immobile. So if it's like you got a pole, give it a wiggle first so it doesn't just pull out. And then lock your bike in a way that immobilizes it, even if they can get it off it. So like through part of the frame and the wheel. There's lots of stuff online for that. But locking it right is half the battle. And again, lock it in a place where there's lots of people. It's not so much lights or cameras that would deter that, but lots of traffic, uh, human traffic, like pedestrian traffic, will reduce the chance of your bike getting stolen in that location. Uh, register your bike and report it stolen. So it's funny when I was talking earlier about we just resigned to bike theft as an everyday part of life. Like, oh, that's how I lose all my bikes. They just get stolen. That's when I get a new bike. Uh, so we don't report it, but you can report your bike thefts online. Uh, and that's important for sort of making it harder to sell stolen bikes. How? Uh, <laughs> I mean, how many people buy a bike that don't even uh, write down the serial number, let alone register it with your insurance company, or can you register it with the police? Where do you register uh, you it? Register it with the city at three, uh, 311. All the information's there. You can do it online. It's uh, under seven bucks, uh, and they give you a little sticker that they put on the bike, and if it's recovered through police, fire, paramedic, emergency services, they'll give you a call. But only 3% of those bikes get returned. So <laughs> registering isn't part of it, but I still would, I mean, registering isn't the whole solution, but I no. would still register just so, again, if somebody encounters the bike as stolen property, they know that that's what it is, right? So it makes stolen bikes harder to move. So it takes away the economics of it. And also, that's why you should never buy a bike online. Never. Don't buy a bike online. from Because <laughs> it's just to, that has really upscaled the economics of selling stolen bikes. B- because the odds are it is a stolen. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I mean, you have to do your due diligence, but it, just an easier best practice is don't buy a bike on, online. So buy let, from a local retailer. Let, 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 let's talk about that. Bicycles as currency within the, this this drug epidemic mm-hmm. or this dr- drug emergency, whatever terminology you want to use right now, it is is a big part of people getting the money they need to uh, fuel their drug habit. Is, yes. that, is that not It's what's correct? fueling the theft is that the people who are preying on this vulnerable population, keeping people addicted, keeping people vulnerable to addiction, those folks who are making money off it all, they view bikes as a, a quick turnaround for, for cash. Uh, so, you know, if they become harder to move – they're going to become stolen less. So, and they've just they've integrated it through into a larger scale chop shop, essentially. And you're hearing and that too, like that the bikes are being yeah, piecemealed, so to speak. Stuff and- that comes in through bicycle recovery services that we see is yeah, it's a lot of like higher end stuff stolen, and you know that it's 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 in exchange for drugs, right? So, uh, and. It, Anything to prevent yourself from a target, anything including taking the economics out of it, 
is is better. So you just if you don't buy a bike online, buy it from a local retailer, build it yourself from a community bike shop. Uh, those are all ways just to ensure that it's less profitable, harder to make money off it. And also dispose of your bike properly. So if you have a bike that you don't want, take it to a 4R Winnipeg depot because it all goes into community programming for bikes. So if you leave your bike out on the lane, like that's, you know, that's nice and all like that, but uh, they'll, it's just ends up sort of devaluing a bike. And when people bring bikes that are stolen scrap, a lot of stolen bikes go to scrap. They can just say, oh, you know, somebody left this one out. So you can, it's the right instinct to want to get your bikes people, but take them to a 4R depot, uh, Again, it's Cities 311, and all the bikes there go to community programming, which I think is part of this, too, because um, getting bikes to people, better physical, mental health outcomes. So, well, it gets back to your so number pro- one, which yeah. was it gets more people biking if you donate your bike to a valuable service. Yes, and it provides programming in the community that's very important, especially to the most vulnerable people. Like for somebody who's struggling with meth addiction or is in a very – is in a – is vulnerable and is a position where it's susceptible to being preyed upon by folks, uh, a bicycle can really help. Bike programming can really help. Connects them to a wider community, teaches them some skills, builds some personal capacity and self-confidence, and gets them riding on a bike, which is really good for brain health. Uh, riding is my riddle, and as uh, Clara Hughes said. Well, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a team to belong to mm-hmm. and a, a, a smaller community within the larger community to become a part of. It, it goes a long way. Yeah, it's a way to explore your community too. Like, because because you, it's a just a great way to connect with people and environment. It's a lovely city, lovely time to do it. It's like discovering new things and really connecting with people. Uh, but I, last Thursday at Open Shop, there was a uh, person who was like having a hard time. They were recovering from meth. They had a, they were struggling with meth addiction. They kind of had to remove themselves from the shop because they were. Just they'd gotten so frustrated to the point of uh, of like outbursts. And when I was talking to them outside, when we calmed down a bit, they were just explaining how important having a bicycle was for them. Like how like they said they had essentially two modes. They were just like depressed in their apartment and like at risk of using again, or they're out on a bike feeling good. You know what I mean? It can go a long way on many levels. Pat Krawick is the co-executive director of The Wrench, Winnipeg Repair Education and Cycling Hub. TheWrench.ca is the website for this nonprofit bicycling repair and education hub. Pat, thank you for the visit. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Sir. Always lovely to be here. May is MS Awareness Month in Manitoba and across Canada. And tomorrow is World MS Awareness Day. The MS Society of Manitoba, Canada, raising awareness of the invisible symptoms of MS and its unseen impact on the quality of life. Melissa Kuhn lives with MS and joins us in studio. Melissa, thank you for doing this. We appreciate you coming in from McGregor today. Thank you so much for having me and for letting me speak on uh, invisible symptoms of MS. Well, why don't we start with, with your journey and your situation. When did you find out that you had MS and, and what was the tip-off for you? Okay, so actually it all started back in 2011 where I had my first attack is what they called it. And um, what happened was my left side actually, it's as if it shut down. So I was at work and next thing I knew I lost sensation, I lost control in my left arm and then eventually it spread to my left leg. 
Anyway, a few days later, I'm still in the hospital trying to get some answers. And uh, they basically sent me home, said, sorry, we can't help you. But the MS clinic will be in touch with you to check up and maybe get an MRI. So a year later, you know, nothing happened. And, and sorry, that was the first time you'd heard like MS mentioned? Yes. Okay. So this was completely new to me. I don't have any immediate family members who even had this disease. So this was just a little bit of a, a surprise mm-hmm. and just kind of shocking, like what's happening to my body, right? What did I do to make this uh, trigger this um, scary <laughs> thing? So. This episode, right? Yeah, Which, this episode, well, that's in, what in, it was. In retrospect, it was an episode. You didn't know that at the time. So you said the word a year. You waited a year for your MRI? Yes. So that's another issue. Sometimes it takes a long time to get these appointments, um, but that's not the only thing that you can wait. You know, you can wait a long time for occupational therapy, physiotherapy. So those are just some of the things that I'll be talking about later. Um, So actually, um, they can't diagnose you uh, from the first attack. So what they basically told me, it's a clinically isolated syndrome. Um, which is one type of MS. It's a suspected um, type of MS anyway. Um, it My second attack happened in 2016, and I woke up, I was getting ready for work, and I was trying to get uh, an earring into my ear, and it, it wouldn't work. Like as, It's as if my, my left hand wasn't you know, listening to what I was <laughs> trying to make it do. Um, so anyway, instead of going to work, we went to the doctors and, um, you know, a few months later, again, um, get an MRI. And uh, March two- 2017 is when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, to be more specific, it's called remitting, uh, relapsing remitting MS. And that usually just means that when you do have an attack, uh, you can eventually recover it. 99% of the time is what I say because you'll still have the symptoms every now and then. And uh, yeah, that's basically how that all happened. And then, you know, you go through the stages of denial and it's kind of like you're grieving too a life that you you thought you were go- going to live and then this Well, if you happens. don't have anyone in your family you mentioned, you don't have any benchmark for how you think it's supposed to go or what other people have gone through. Like, was it a complete learning curve too? Because the, the grief that you would have felt would have also been associated to what you might have assumed a person living with MS might go through. Oh, absolutely. I thought right away, wheelchair. <laughs> I thought that was how my life was going to, you know, end up. That's what I visualized, but... Um, after uh, quite a few months of denial, especially because when I look at myself, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, how can this be? Like, they must have made a mistake. Like, I can't, no, (laughs) I can't, uh, settle for this. And I even mentioned, I had asked you when you first came in, how old are you? Because even in my own perceptions of what I assume MS to be, I I had pegged it in an older person's body and in your how old? I will be 28. Yeah. Yeah. Which you, which you said is pretty typical it is. for MS. Yes, uh, MS usually gets diagnosed um, between the ages of 20 and 40 years old. Uh, it's also three times more likely uh, for women to be diagnosed uh, with MS. 
And uh, yeah, well, <laughs> that's... There are public perceptions about what MS is and what it does, and I think we established pretty quickly in our repartee before coming on the air the fact that uh, MS, uh, uh, if anything, treats its, its, its victims differently no matter who you are. There's no playbook. It's MS. It, it, it really does affect people differently, and, and there are four different types of MS, which a lot of people don't realize as well. That's correct. So the one that I was diagnosed, the relapsing remitting MS, um, that's mostly uh, the general population will get diagnosed with that one first. And they say about maybe 20 years down the road, it will eventually switch into primary progressive, which means that there is no more uh, remission. And it's basically, you know, you're just kind of um, deteriorating and, you know, losing mobility, losing uh, your sensitivity and um, a lot of different bodily functions um, you start to lose control of. So. Is there something if, you know, people are listening out there and they're thinking about how you had this ep- this episode, you call it, like, is there something we should be watching for, noting or taking taking special attention to so that we can ask our doctors the right questions? Because I wonder if some of the early symptoms might be something that you would just kind of ignore or brush off as like, oh, I don't need to worry about that, right? That's great that you mentioned that because... Uh, since I've been diagnosed, I've kind of approached my life, you know, after going through the grief and the denial and that whole process, um, I look at my life as um, through mind, body and soul. So physical symptoms is not the only thing that uh, you need to be aware of. Um, I've become a lot more in tune with my body, especially, you know, as I'm trying to identify the triggers Um and then identify how am I feeling right now? Like, am I, do I get tingling in my arm? Am I, how tired am I? So I'm constantly trying to um, assess how I'm feeling. And uh, one of the other things that I've mentioned too is the mind, body, and soul. It's not just your physical symptoms that you need to be mindful of. It's how do you deal with your emotions? Uh, what's feeding your soul? Am I happy? So these are the types of questions that are even more important to me now being diagnosed and as a young adult, I'm so unsure of, you know, what my future will look like. I just started, I just graduated university. Congratulations. Thank you so much. But yeah, it's all, you know, it's questions like how will my career work? You know, how will MS work with my career? How will my personal life work with MS? So it's all these types of questions that your typical, you know, mid-20-year-old person, young adult, doesn't necessarily have to question. So that was one of the biggest learning curves that uh, I'm still learning from. Melissa Kuhn is our guest. She lives with MS. Tomorrow is World MS Day, and May is MS Awareness Month. The hashtag, which you'll be seeing I'm sure is my invisible MS. This year's theme is visibility. And for more information, you can go to worldmsday.org. Melissa, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. And now we want to tell you about something that is happening tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock in the atrium. And to intro this, I'm going to read you a review of this book. Intimate, disarming, and riotous. Bina is a searing exploration of one woman's soul that unwinds like a reluctant confession 
whether Bina is rescuing a ne'er-do-well from a ditch, taking a hammer to a plane, or considering the dark request of her best friend. Schofield has created a compelling, practical every woman, someone who has had enough and is ready to make a spectacle. Anna Kana Schofield is the author of Bina. She joins us live on 680 CJOB. Anna Kana, good morning to you. Good morning, Winnipeg. So before we get into the book and learn about Bina, we understand you had a rather harrowing experience on I, your plane. I did. I had a very harrowing experience. Well, I, I have to say the experience was harrowing for the person who was on the receiving end of it. En route to Winnipeg yesterday, um, a fabulous, beautiful woman was being very va- nastily verbally abused by another uh, a, a couple, an older couple, who refused to sit beside her based on the size and shape of her body. And um, so I didn't realise what was happening. I was a couple of rows back and the um, cabin crew, uh, the the woman asked this objecting woman to take her seat. She said, take your seat, ma'am. You know, it's a full flight. And, and so this was carrying on. So I just jumped up and I said, look, I'll swap because this person was... Obviously, I, at first I thought, OK, and, and I heard her shouting, she should have paid for two seats. She should have paid for two seats. And I thought, well, maybe she has a child on her knees or maybe she's carrying, um, you know, she's traveling with a, a dog or cash or something. And, and so, I, so I, as I came to take the seat, I said, well, what's the problem? And the woman who was abusing this other fantastic woman, um, she said, it's her size, she said, it's her size. Um, and I was so appalled. Mm. I actually, um, I said, this is not a problem uh, at all. I said, I'm, I'm very happy to, to sit beside this woman. So I sat down and the husband was moved to my seat. And then the, let's just refer to the person as the hater. So the hater was then sat beside me and, and the hater actually continued and started saying, um, really shouting very loudly, like, she, she, she knows she should have paid for two seats. And, and I, I just was so shocked. I said, I said, can you please show some basic respect mm-hmm. for your fellow human being? And she continued. And so I said, I'm just appalled. And I said, um, I moved here to stop you abusing this woman, not to facilitate you. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then she said, and now you're abusing me. Oh, my so gosh. I, uh, so I said, well, I'll be very happy to not speak another word to you for the rest of this journey, and I will be speaking to this lovely woman beside me. She should have booked two planes for her ego. She should. <laughs> you know what should have happened? She should have been deplaned immediately. And what really upset me the most about this situation was how long it took me to realize what was happening. And there were passengers all around. And what was the woman who was at the receiving end of that abuse doing at that time? She was crying. She was, I mean, totally humiliated. Um, and she was, I mean, I just, it was the most surreal experience because I'd arrived in a situation where I actually didn't realize how horrible, I mean, it was vicious. So I didn't know what to do. So I I just started rubbing her, which I probably should have asked. (laughs) It's very possible that I was more traumatized by my constant, you know, rubbing. And I just apologized. And then, and then I said, look, so then we had, um, you know, two and a half hours of the flight. And so I just, we just had a great chat. And it turns out that this woman who was so horribly abused and not just abused, the husband had been taking the armrest because the armrest was up 
and he had been ramming it down. So basically assaulting this this woman um, in addition to all this abuse. Um, but it turns out that the woman, Paulette, um, is works in Kenora and she is the, the chef. She's the cook at the prison. And she cooks every day 198 meals right, by right. herself for the inmates. And in her kitchen, there are at any given time, there are five to eight inmates who work with her. And I, so I, it was so lovely to hear about her life. I mean, she's the most wonderful woman. It was a, it was a delight to sit beside her. Um, there was loads of room. It was not an issue. Um, and, and I kept saying to her, you know, you, in every moment of your life at work, you're changing people's lives. Because those people who work in that kitchen are are with you and you are wonderful. And so the moral of the story is we have to collectively respond to haters. And what we needed was more vocal people around, you know, move towards the person who's being abused, eject the hater, freeze them out. It happens all the time in very minor ways where people just sort of nod and move on and, or pretend like they don't see something or hear something because it's easier Often to not get involved, which is which is that if if it was on the if you're on the receiving end of that, you'd be sitting there wondering why nobody was stepping in to defend you or help you or at least tell that person to calm down, right? Well, once we landed and we got off the plane, a bunch of passengers, you know, uh, commended me and said to her, "You didn't deserve that. I had your back." But I thought, which was which was lovely. But at the time, how is somebody to know you have their back if you don't give any vocal indication of the fact? Do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, what shocked me as well is how utterly acceptable fat shaming is. And and it needs to now be, you need to be immediately deplaned. If you are harassing and abusing someone, there is the issue of, okay, was the passenger who was doing the abuse, was the person somehow maybe neurologically impaired or did they have some challenge? Even so, then we still need to deplane the person to find out. So does this not highlight, uh, let's let's get the positive out of this, that every, everyone has a story. And if you just take the time to listen, they, they may even, in fact, have a fascinating story. Absolutely. Um, the value of, 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 of every human, the value of people's labor and what we think we're, when we're looking at someone, what we think we're seeing you know, based on, you know, bias, prejudice and internalized hate or whatever, or just overt hate. Yeah, I th- I thought actually it was pretty binary-ish, you know. The w- main character in my novel is this um, is this woman who's had enough. She's from rural Island. She's 74 years old. And as you know, because I believe you've sampled a bit of her, um, you know, she's just very uh, feisty and outspoken. And so she would have a warning about that situation. So now I've got to add a warning to my novel, which well, is, you know, if you think something is being said in a circumstance like that, stand up and, and get involved by supporting the person being abused. Tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock, it's an evening with Anna Kana Schofield. She is the author of Bina, a novel in warnings. And we haven't even talked about it yet. You're such a wonderful storyteller. You told us the story of what happened on the plane and how you stepped in in this instance where a couple was shaming a woman because she was a little bit bigger. So we now want to know a little bit about Bina's story. Who's Bina? Well, Bina is a 74-year-old woman who lives in rural Ireland. Um, she, at the beginning of the novel, she's been arrested for uh, accused of aiding and abetting in a suicide. Um, the novel is set in Ireland and we don't have medical assistance in dying in Ireland the way we are blessed to have it in Canada. So Bina's part of something that is referred to in the novel as the group. 
Um, and she goes around um, ending in suffer- people who are suffering intolerably, helping them to end their lives. Um, she is in a very odd situation. She's trapped in her kitchen with um, a man who she took in, basically crashed his motorbike into her ditch. And um, she took him in and he's been there for 10 years, the awful man, Eddie. And so she can't get rid of him. She doesn't, she's not able to see a way to to get get rid of him. Um, so I like the contradiction that she can go into other people's kitchens and help them. Um, but then her friend, her best friend, Phil, who was the main character in my first novel, Malarkey, um, hints and asks for Bina to help her to end her life. And Bina's having none of it. Well, Malarkey won the Amazon First Novel Award. And then your last book, Martin John, shortlisted for the Giller Prize. So uh, your pedigree comes uh, <laughs> comes uh, very understated. And so when we talk about this book and we talk about the idea of, I, I think this is a common problem a lot of us have, is we're really good at solving other people's mm. problems, but we're not so good at solving our own. Is, mm. is that one of the underlying themes here? Very much. I just want to say my pedigree is pedigree chum, right? <laughs> Do you have pedigree chum in Canada? I, I don't it's think a dog food. It's, no, I don't think so. Because chum, chum's like the stuff you feed to fish, yeah, isn't it? Sharks, like you sharks you or whatever. Sharks for the, for the I was divers. Like, why does she know about shark food? Well, that I, maybe is a chum, whole other conversation. And she's a non-swimmer. <laughs> but, you know, at McNally Robinson tonight, after I've, you know, read from Bina, tomorrow I'll be able to swim, right? I'm 48 years old. It hasn't happened yet. But if it's going to happen anywhere. It's got to happen in Winnipeg. Metaphorically speaking? Metaphorically speaking. And likewise, um, I think it's true. Um, Humans are an enormous contradiction. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm very contradictory. Um, And so in my novels, I'm usually interested in positing some, you know, quandary, some philosophical question. I don't have the answers. So I thought about this and I thought about the way... um, when this is the reason why it's a novel in warnings. The whole novel is told as a series of warnings. And I was trying to think about the language of warnings. And I was thinking about how when somebody takes their life, this is like as in suicide, not end of life choice, the way in which we go back in our minds, and I don't know if any of you have experienced losing a close one to to, to suicide, mm-hmm. but you go back in your mind and you try to find, was there any warning? So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to look at, find the right language. Because uh, my work is very concerned with with language and with form. Like I don't, I'm not interested in telling straightforward stories in a straightforward way. Uh, so you're not going to find, I don't have a boyfriend in my novels um, yet. Um, maybe once I learn to swim though, maybe I'll start <laughs> writing how to get a boyfriend novels. So in the meantime, I'm, <laughs> I'm down here in the ditch with Bina. Um, so I love this idea that you can be out there, as you say, um, and first of all, you can be very prescriptive for other people. And because the novel is so focused on these two women and their friendship, um, I don't know what Lorraine thinks about this, but I notice that with, our, in my, with my closest friends, you know, there is a dialogue of warnings in my head. So um, if my if one of my friends like hooks up with someone who I just think is bad news, you know, you don't turn around and go, you know, stop it. You go, well, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and in your head you're thinking, oh, here we go again mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Obviously, all my friends don't do silly things. Right. Um, and they're not doing it in reverse for us. There's no judgment coming back on us when we tell a story. 
That's the beauty of friendship, right? <laughs> they don't well, we all, I'm just saying we it. all have those inner yeah. conversations yeah. in our heads about our friends, and we know that they do the same to us. Yeah. But it's a filter that you use depending on which friendship you're talking about. To talk well, to I do think that the best to be got in life is friendship. Um, you know, love is a pretty inclement weather system, and I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to be down on love. And if anybody wants to come forward and love me, work. You know, knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. But friendship. An evening with Anna Kana Schofield tonight at 7 o'clock at McNally Robinson, where she will be presenting and signing her book, Bina, a novel in warnings. And it's co-presented by the Winnipeg International Writers Festival as part of the collaborative Spring Literary Series. Anna Kana, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks a million. It was delightful to be here. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.